Claptrap, Episode 13, Cryptography. everyone, Kyle here. Sorry to delay on the releasing of this week's episode. We just had some scheduling conflicts and everything, but I think this one will be well worth the wait because here today we have Joe Beck who works in cryptography. And I think cryptography is kind of a relevant topic nowadays because of the prevalence of the blockchain that's becoming a new and expanding technology that I think we should keep our eye on, especially with things like cryptocurrency on which it's built if you've been paying attention, Bitcoin has recently reached around like $40,000 in price. And I also think, you know, relevant to the conversation is just the fact of trying to send encrypted data online and keeping your privacy while you're browsing or buying things. So I think it's a, it's a discussion that needs to be had. And I think Joe has a lot of good stuff to say. This is probably one of the topics that Josh and I were the least knowledgeable about so far. So I hope you guys really enjoy it. And here we go. All right, Joe, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So when people say cryptography, like I was telling my wife what the concept of the conversation was going to be, and she just looked at me and she's like, I have no idea even what that is. So maybe you could explain to us what cryptography actually is. Is that like calligraphy? No, those are very different things. Calligraphy is just fancy writing. I guess you could do cryptography by writing fancy in such a way that nobody could read it. <laughs> but no, uh, so yeah, uh, cryptography is essentially obfuscating messages and data so that other people can't read it. So uh, say I don't want Josh to read a note I send to Kyle. So I encrypt my data somehow and I send it to Kyle and Kyle's able to decrypt it and read the message that says Josh smells. Um, <laughs> and that's pretty much the basics of it. And then like, you know, it gets way more complicated when we start talking about how that encryption is done. I would guess it's a huge military implication as well as like all your secret service agencies or even to your, like your business code and, and things like that. Like when you're trying to send information over, over the web it is, am I kind of like in the ballpark there? Yeah. And it, you know, it has applications across everything. So like, yeah, you're right. Uh, the, the primary leader in encryption and cryptography, like science development has been the military in the past, but now today, like whenever you're on Amazon shopping for your new baby rocker or whatever you're buying, either you'll see a little green lock icon in your browser. And what that means is your traffic with Amazon is encrypted. So someone's packet sniffing, can't just grab your debit card whenever you enter it to buy your baby rocker. Right. So, so you're just trying to add a level of secure uh, security there on like your online stuff. That, I mean, that's, that's super important nowadays. I feel like with everything being online. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And you know, where, where I work, the, my job is essentially around implementing uh, public key infrastructure, which is like cryptography for enterprises so that big Fortune 500 companies like your banks and that kind of thing can have secure data transmission and their data isn't getting stolen by hackers. Uh, it's like a hacker might be able to get a hold of a hard drive, but the whole thing's encrypted in such a way that there's no way that they could ever get the data out of it. 
or at least like one in like I don't even know, make up some number, hundred trillion chance or something like that, right? Hundred or like a hundred trillion years from now, they could they could possibly break into it. Yeah, it's usually measured more in you know the amount of time it would take for a standard computer to break an encryption algorithm is for the to be you know secure, right? So obviously, as computers get stronger, they're able to compute more and test more keys. So whenever you're encrypting something, you have a key that is the encry- that does the encryption and the decryption. And essentially, whenever you want to steal somebody's data, you want to try to figure out what that key is to figure out the rest of their data, and you could just steal whatever they've got. And because computers keep getting stronger and stronger and stronger, the cryptographic algorithms need to keep getting stronger and stronger and stronger over time. Because, like, say, back in World War II, when computers were start- first starting to become a thing, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the... Uh, uh, is the Enigma code? Yeah, the Enigma, Enigma code from the Germany. That's in a famous movie. Uh... Well, it's in several movies. What is it called? It's um, Imitation Game. Yeah, but in- Imitation Game is actually a really great movie that talks about it. Uh, that algorithm back then in World War II was impossible to solve. They spent years, and the movie talks about it and shows you how they how hard it was for them to break that cryptographic algorithm. But today, you put like your mom's laptop on solving that task and it could do it in seconds it's that's how easy that algorithm was to break yeah i guess it's the difference between having to do everything by hand versus doing it at the speed of light through through code and everything like that because even like julius caesar they used to do these things called caesar squares where they would send a message and i mean it was a relatively easy in encryption because it was just okay whatever the letter is move three down in the alphabet and that's what the new letter the actual letter is so it really wasn't that hard to figure out but if you're like an illiterate barbarian tribe you're not going to be able to decrypt the uh the romans you know code or whatever so exactly that also makes me think of like another movie reference here like the da vinci code in in those books uh what's i can't even think of the name of that thing it's like where they used to hide like scripts and things in like a little tube basically and it had like a a code that you had to decipher on it is that where they had to like wrap the paper around the stick in a certain way to get the code to come out right or else it would like break apart and like ink would come out and like destroy what was ever on the inside kind of thing Oh, so it was tamper-proofed. Okay. I honestly never watched the movie, so I don't know. <laughs> I think it's called a codex, but I'm not 100% sure. I think that, that rings a bell, so... Yeah, and just to get in a little bit about, you know, how crypto works, like uh, your alphabet jumping that you were talking about, Kyle, where you just shift by three characters to the alphabet for the entire message, we call that a symmetric cipher. So... What that is, is the same key that encrypts the data also decrypts it. So if you know that the alphabet's already slid three characters to the left in order to encrypt it and obfuscate it, then you slide the characters three to the left and you've decrypted it. And then what you have what you use, we use today and kind of like what the Enigma code was in Germany, which is asymmetric encryption, where one key does the encryption and then there's another key that can decrypt. And those aren't the same thing. So it'd be kind of like a padlock that can only be locked with one key, and then you have to have a different key to unlock it. It's super complicated whenever you start looking at the mathematics of how some of these algorithms work. Yeah, that sounds like some kind of Inception-level stuff where 
you get into some crazy different mathematics and, and techniques on how to do this. What kind of mathematical background did you have to have in order to get into this? I didn't have to have one specifically. So like my mathematical background, I'm an engineer. And so I had to take like all the way up to differential equations in college. And you don't need any of that for uh, cryptography. You actually only really need to know algebra and like Boolean logic. So like ands and ors and that kind of thing. The first big asymmetric encryption algorithms that came out mostly just use like the mod operator. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that, but it's the uh, the remainder operator, essentially. And the, they just use that plus giant prime numbers, and you have a secure encryption algorithm. And I can explain a little bit more what I mean by that if you want, or we could just skip over that. <laughs> no, go ahead. Go elaborate a little more. I'm interested. Okay. Going back to the computers breaking the algorithms thing and the algorithms need to get stronger and stronger to match the computers. Essentially what that means is the math involved to crack an encryption key needs to be very, very tough to do. So I don't know if you guys remember back in like grade school, you'd be given like the number 21 and you'd be told, be told, all right, break that number down into its primes. So what is that? Three and seven, right? That's the two prime numbers. That's really easy to do, right? It's a very small number. You can kind of figure it out in your head really quick. But like, all right, now break down 8,956,701. Break that down into its fundamental primes. So with this encryption algorithm called RSA, it's an acronym for the three scientists who developed it. I can't remember what their names are. Sorry. Essentially, their algorithm relied on how difficult it is to factor very, very large numbers. So it, it back to the, the asymmetric key thing, the private key for RSA is just two very, very large prime numbers. And we're talking like a thousand bits long. So you, I said a million, but we're talking like 20 zeros, very, very large numbers. And then you multiply those two primes together and you have the public key. So, you can give the public key is the one that you can like give to other people and they can use it to encrypt data to send to you. And then you with the private key, the two prime numbers, you're able to decrypt any data and read the message. So that's kind of how, you know, data transmission over the internet works is Josh, I'm doing a transaction with you. You give me your public key. I want to send you data. I encrypt the data with your public key and send it over the network Nobody can read it except for you. And then when you get it, you decrypt it with your private key, the two prime numbers, and you're able to read the message. So it's like it's like I would be giving you like a portion of the code in that scenario. Say, hey, I need this amount of information that I can understand. And then you make it so I have the two keys to unlock it, basically. Uh, or, am I, or am I got that backwards? It's more like you you own the key to your house and you give me one of those keys that anybody can have. That's, that's a, that's a terrible analogy. <laughs> I thought I was going somewhere with that in my head, but it didn't really go anywhere. You just got to think about it in terms of public and private keys. So public keys is anybody can use it. And the private key is only one person's person is supposed to have it. And any data encrypted with the public key can only be decrypted with the private key and vice versa. All right, how about this as an analogy? So sometimes people don't want to give out their address, so they'll give they'll get like a PO box at the post office. So people will know they can send stuff to the PO box, but then 
you will go to the P.O. box and you can bring the message home where then you can read it. Yeah, that kind that kind of works. Yeah. Okay. So, how do hackers try to decode encrypted information? Is that even like a possible realistic thing to do? Because I guess the easiest—well, I don't know if it'd be easy—but the easiest way is to basically try all the different combinations of of digits in order to unlock the the message. But if you're talking about thousands of bits long, that could take a bazillion years you know what i mean yeah trillions of years yeah i mean it's it's just a couple whiteboards across your house right <laughs> i would love to see somebody try to hack an rsa encryption key by hand that would be nightmare inducing so it, in terms of attacks there's actually multiple kinds and the the most basic and you know barbaric one there is is the brute force attack the one you just mentioned where you you just keep trying things until one eventually works because you do know there is a finite number of keys or values that can fit into a certain bit bandwidth and eventually you're going to get it right and if it took you all the way until the last possible option it could take trillions of years of the current computation power to figure out what that key is. Obviously, you know, it's not going to be the last one. It's going to be somewhere in the middle, but you never know. It could be the first one you try too. So it's kind of, you know, up in the air, but because there's, it would take so long to try all of those keys. It's essentially not worth your time. Unless if it's like an older algorithm that we've already hacked, like the Enigma code where you can just brute force it really easy on today's computer. And it only takes a couple seconds. That's why, like short passwords, for instance, are really easy to brute force because the number of operate or the number of combinations is so small compared to a long password. Is that why companies have you add like special characters? Because instead of having twenty six letters that they can try for, I guess if you include capitalization, then you double the amount of inputs, and then if you add special characters, that even increases the amount of things that could go into each slot. Exactly. Yep. Increasing the number of combinations and then, you know, a minimum length requirement also increases that. Kind of like a newer technology in, I don't know if it falls under cryptography or not, but is the whole blockchain. Can you maybe explain what that is and how that works? Because you hear a lot about that in the space of like cryptocurrency, but it has other applications as well. Yeah, yeah. So blockchain is essentially a technology that uses cryptography for security and essentially proving something to be true. And while everyone knows like something like Bitcoin is blockchain based, blockchain as a technology has a lot of other uses. I would argue the best use is something like audit logging, like making sure that operations like who comes in and out of a door are logged but logged in such a secure way that someone who gets access to the logs can't edit them to say, oh, instead of Josh going through the door, Kyle went through the door at this time. Because the second he, you change that, the blockchain becomes invalid and someone can figure out that that was tampered with. And blockchains essentially use another cryptographic operation called a hash, which is taking a big set of data and creating a hash of it or turning it into a unique string that is x number of characters long and ideally there are enough values to your hash side like so your hash is long enough that any two values that are hashed will not result in the same value at the end obviously this is impossible 
because there's an infinite number of inputs and not an infinite number of outputs. But, you know, the number of inputs is so infinitesimally large and only so many of them are going to be used that you can ideally come up with like, uh, for instance, uh, SHA-512 is a 512-bit long hash. They're reasonably sure that given any input to the SHA-512 hash algorithm, you're going to get a unique output for like the next 50 years. And you'll never have a collision is what they call it when two inputs get the same output. But anyway, I'm rambling here a little bit. Uh, blockchain essentially takes like some kind of data. So an audit log message or in Bitcoin's case, a pile of transactions and hashes that data into a unique string during the proof of work process or however your blockchain creates new blocks. Uh, it's, it's pretty unique per blockchain technology. And then it uses that hash plus the hash of all of the other old blocks to secure the chain, essentially. And what you can do is you can look at any given block and compare its hash to all the other, to the rest of the chain, and you'll know if it's valid or not immediately. And you can pretty much trace that back till you find the first chain in the, or block in the chain that is valid. And then you'll know, okay, the next one has been tampered with somehow. We need to investigate what happened here. So I've heard it compared to like an open ledger. So like, you know, in a, in a regular banking ledger, you kind of put like, okay, the assets and liabilities and, and whatever in there. And so it's kind of like a, a completely open thing where everything is transparent. So you can tell if any mischief has been done. Is that basically what you're getting at? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And in the case of like, let's use just Bitcoin as an example, since it's really easy. Every single transaction through Bitcoin is completely public. And those public transactions go off to your miners who then mine the blocks until they come up with the solution to the puzzle. Uh, I don't remember exactly how that works. But essentially when you're mining about every 10 minutes, a block gets completed and your transaction would be a part of that block. And once that block gets completed and solved, the entire public space that's monitoring Bitcoin now acknowledges that that block is complete and a permanent part of history when it comes to Bitcoin. And that transaction can literally never go away unless if everyone decides that they need to go back to an earlier point in the blockchain, which won't happen, probably. Uh, there's complicated cases where it can, uh, but it probably won't happen. So essentially, once that block is created with your transaction, that's set in stone for forever. That We now know Josh sent Kyle a million dollars in Bitcoin, and you cannot undo that. You can't go forge the docs at the bank and pretend like you are hiding your tax money. Why in the world would anyone want to do that then? <laughs> I can think of a few reasons. <laughs> Have you guys heard of the new social media company called PocketNet? It's basically a social media platform, but it's on the blockchain. So anything that you post, like Joe was just saying, is set in stone forever. Oh, wow. I had not heard of that. Just what I want to say online. I'm going to go on there after like a drunk rant or something. Yeah, I'm sorry, but I like to be able to delete my tweets when I realize they're stupid. <laughs> Although technically there would be a transaction of deleting your tweets so no one would see it. They would just be able to go back and look at the history and see it. Right. Someone has ac access to it somewhere just because the public doesn't, like you said. It's at, a, it's at another key point. And part of the security with those blockchains is that everybody that uses that tech is agreeing because you could have like one lone wolf 
Kyle DeHoff over here. Sorry if I messed up your last name. Uh, <laughs> pretending like, oh, Josh sent me millions of dollars in Bitcoin and here's the transactions in the block. But if nobody else knows about it, they're all going to completely disagree with you and the blockchain is going to move away from that and it's going to be like it never even happened. So that way you you can't just like make it seem like somebody gave you money. So I guess that is like the good thing about Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies is because that kind of takes away the ability for someone to counterfeit money because everyone has to agree that this is like a legit transaction and only certain things can be mined. Is that correct? Exactly. Exactly. The only way to counterfeit a transaction of Bitcoin is to actually take control of somebody else's wallet, which is a private key like we were talking about earlier. What kind of makes it even more complicated in my mind now, after just talking about that, is how the the rate or or value of, of the cryptocurrency changes. Like, how would you know or what, what principle would would determine why this Bitcoin would would move? You know, how in the world are, are people making decisions on why Bitcoin is worth more or less? If it's just basically a, a, a fair transfer of, you know, the currency to begin with. Yeah. And I honestly don't really know the how to think about that because it, with other, you know, forms of currency, we have ways to track their value, kind of. Like we used to have the the gold standard in the United States. I don't think there's a thing anymore. But essentially, cryptocurrency is worthless unless if everyone collectively agrees it's not. So... Right. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. So it's like who <laughs> who makes the rules on how on how much it's worth? Cuz if basically you could be like, okay, yeah. If everyone agreed that cryptocurrency was 10 times the value of the American dollar, well then like you that like you said it it basically become that's what it would be, but right. And then you get people who are willing to buy cryptocurrency for $10 and a cent. So uh you know, it's it's kind of like the stock market except for there's no actual value behind it where it just continuously changes value based on what people think it's actually worth at the time. I've been thinking about this same thing quite, quite a bit recently, and we can get real nerdy here if you guys want to. Sure. <laughs> okay, so I think there's a thing in economics called von Mises reduction theorem or something like that, where basically this economist kind of traces... Like the present value, how do you know the what the present value of like a dollar is worth? And you can kind of trace it back one day at a time. So you kind of know what the value of a dollar is today because you know what it was yesterday. And you as you go backwards in time, you'll reach a point where, like you said, we used to be on the gold standard. And a dollar just represented a weight in gold. And then gold was valued because it had an intrinsic value and people just started to trade in gold because you know it was small it was valuable you can make jewelry with it people would always want gold so then that became a they got tired of trading cattle and goats and furs so yeah it became a medium of exchange and then if you go back a step beyond that it was just you know straight barter i'll give you chickens if you give me some of your milk or something so you can kind of trace it all the way back to 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 barter using that that similar logic where okay you know from the day before what it was so i think you can do the same with 
Bitcoin because as long as you're like pegging it to a dollar and you know what it was the day before, you can kind of know what the value of it is today. And then it would just be based on supply and demand is kind of, you know, the fluctuation of it where like if someone is holding a bunch of Bitcoins that they mined right when it started and they dump like a million Bitcoins onto the market, then the price is going to go down because you have a new supply. This is maybe kind of getting out of the scope of this conversation, but maybe one of you two might know because I can't say I've I've researched that much into it. So on Bitcoin, besides actually doing like algorithms and and solving these blocks, what is the basis of of a Bitcoin? Is it just like you're getting a currency based on based on your computer being able to solve? like solve a mathematical problem that's out there in the internet or what, what is the, like you said, Kyle, what's the basis? I don't, I don't know. We might not know that either. It's a little complicated. So like when Bitcoin first started, there was a, there was a set number of Bitcoins. Like this is the number of Bitcoins there are, and this cannot change. This base number will not change. And they can be, you know, divided a lot because like one Bitcoin's worth like what, $20,000 right now but you would own like 0.0001 of a Bitcoin and you could still do transactions with that. The way value is added to the total pool is through mining, like you were talking about. So like in Bitcoin's case, there's millions of companies and people out there that set up mining on their computers and they just try and solve this puzzle. Uh, And forgive me, I don't know the exact specifics about Bitcoin's puzzle, but essentially it boils down to there's a puzzle that needs to be solved for every block. And a block contains all of the transactions that have happened in like the last 10 minutes or so. And once the puzzle has been solved, that miner essentially declares to the internet, I have solved the problem. This is the block. This block is now, you know, set in stone. The chain moves on. Everyone starts trying to solve the next block. But that miner is then given coins for solving the block. And that that brings coins into the total economy. Granted, it's a very small amount. And I think it gets a little bit smaller as time goes on. I think like originally, like the first few blocks that were solved were like a coin each. And now they're like fractions upon fractions of coins per block. But that's how value continuously gets added to Bitcoins. But besides that, you know, the the real value is that there's only so many of them. Yeah, I think you're mostly correct in how it works. I think it has a set limit of like, I think it's like 22 million, something like that. And then, as you said, when a new block comes out, the reward is whatever, 10 Bitcoins, like you were saying. And then after a certain period of time, that gets halved. And then it, after you know you go on in time, it's going to asymptote at the 22 million or whatever the, the cap limit is. Oh, okay. See, I did, I, okay, I had that wrong then. All right. I guess my question is, you you might not know this, we're all kind of novices at this cryptocurrency game, but do you know what happens once you reach that, I guess you never really reach an asymptote, but what happens if you run out of incentives for the miners to mine and create new blocks? I'm sure there's a lot more things to worry about with Bitcoin than getting to the end of the chain, I guess you could say. Yeah, I, I don't think anyone will ever own all of the Bitcoin until we reach a certain point where the cryptography 
that secures Bitcoin is no longer secure anymore. And this is why like a lot of people don't want to buy into Bitcoin because they think in about 10 years, those Bitcoins aren't going to be worth anything because the cryptography used to secure your wallet. So those keys I was talking about earlier, your wallet is essentially just a private key. And once a computer can easily determine what your private key is based off your public key, your you, people can just steal your wallet and you can't do anything about it because they know your private key. And a lot of people don't want to buy Bitcoin because of this. And they're worried that like, you know, quantum computing, while it's currently in its infancy state, quantum computing can solve a lot of the cryptographic problems right now, like almost instantaneously, theoretically. So like RSA that currently protects all of your internet traffic could be solved instantly by a quantum computer and your stuff could be stolen versus there's other algorithms that are new and coming out that are secure against quantum computing. Like there are crypto, uh, what, what's the term for it? Uh, I don't remember what it's called. Uh, I don't want to lie. <laughs> um, <laughs> but essentially they're like immune to quantum computers, or at least they're more durable against them, but Bitcoin is not built on those algorithms. So either something's going to have to change in the Bitcoin ecosystem to convert over to this new cryptography base or Bitcoin eventually is just not going to be worth anything and it's going to move on to another cryptocurrency that is secure. I, I mean, I, I guess I know how to defeat the quantum computer. Let's save your Bitcoins. After you collect what you want, you just unplug from the internet. <laughs> uh, no, actually, because your public wallet, your public key is still registered. It's still out there somewhere. Yeah, your public key is still out there. And because of that, your wallet always exists. So like all those people way back when Bitcoin started who like have a hard drive that has a wallet on it that they lost or something. And they're like, oh man, I wish I wouldn't have lost that hard drive. It has 10 Bitcoins on it. I'd be rich. Like one of my coworkers has this problem. It's out there in like the outer space somewhere. Yeah, and it's it's still attainable. You just got to crack the encryption behind it to get your private get your private key back. Exactly. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> good luck. I could see that becoming like the next like treasure hunting in like a hundred years. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It'd essentially be a mad dog race to figure out who can you know hack as many private keys as possible and giving themselves the money and then transferring that money into other currencies before it's not worth anything (laughs) well isn't that kind of the problem now is people instead of holding their own keys they'll turn them over to like coinbase or something and then that puts like all your keys in one place so then hackers instead of having like a completely decentralized network to try to hack like one at a time they're all in one place so they're constantly trying to get into that that one place that holds all these keys. Yeah, I guess that would be less secure than holding the keys by yourself because once they get the hackers just need to get access to Coinbase and its databases and past all the encryption they probably have on their databases and stuff and then they would have access to all your private keys at once. They're not going to have a whole lot of luck doing that by doing the same thing where they try to just hack private keys by brute forcing them. Uh, they'd have more luck social engineering or uh, something along those lines. One kind of thing I've been interested in hearing about is kind of like the privacy aspect of encryption. So are there some different kind of softwares or something that 
is really good in that aspect for maybe like peer-to-peer or end-to-end encryption. Well, of course you have your malware that encrypts your entire file system (laughs) and tells you to pay $300 and you're not getting your files back. In in terms of peer-to-peer, I mean, uh, the most obvious one that stands out is pretty much the internet HTTPS protocol. It's pretty darn secure and it uses encryption uh, encryption to encrypt end to end and then you get goofy things like uh i guess uh whatsapp claims to be encryption end to end but it really isn't but those technologies support making it so that nothing but your computer and their computer can read what's happening uh using the same asymmetric keys that we were talking about earlier and this thing called a shared secret All these, you know, pretty much the internet is one of the most secure ways to send data in a secure manner. If you want to get more secure, just physical data access is more secure, I guess. You know, from history, we were kind of talking early, a little bit earlier about historical examples of cryptography is, do you have like a favorite? We were talking about the Enigma machine, but is there any other codes throughout history that kind of catch your eye? I can only... Think of a few off the top of my head, but I would I would honestly have to go with the Enigma machine just because of like how cool it was <laughs> at the time. And like there's all these movies about it. And like I love World War II movies, and there's a couple of them that, you know, focus on that code as the uh I mean, out of history in general, I feel like that it probably has some of the most historic importance, you know, in the entire world, right? I mean I mean, sure, I think what there's other ones that- Probably the only one that I think I've known before, Kyle, that I think that you mentioned was about the Zodiac Killer stuff. But I mean, that, that's just like a great, like a crazy killer guy. Like this Enigma machine was for an entire war, right? It was like to solve the communication of an completely, you know, secret code for a country. Yeah, and the the efforts around trying to to solve it, and then once they did solve it, all the secrecy behind trying to make sure it was a secret that they knew how to solve it, so the Germans wouldn't upgrade their encryption tech anymore <laughs> to the point where they couldn't hack it anymore. Like the they showed in that movie into Imitation Game, they'd hacked the Enigma code, and they knew the German subs were gonna attack like a British uh, convoy in the the Atlantic Ocean. But they decided not to do anything about it because if they did, it would have given away that they knew how to crack the Enigma code. And they felt like that wasn't saving that convoy wasn't important enough to reveal that information. Yeah. Talk about a crazy decision you'd you'd have to make. Oh, I could never make that decision. (laughs) I would I would save the convoy, you know, (laughs) like but when it comes to like my favorite, it has to be that one because there's so much interesting stuff that went on because of that Enigma code and hacking the Enigma code is what started essentially computers as we know them today. Well, kind of another interesting example from world war two is the, the wind talker code that the United States used uh, where they used native American language that none of the other, you know, Japan and Germany, none of the other countries had exposure to because there's only the small pocket of Native Americans that still spoke this language. Right. And, you know, that that one's not as easy to solve with the computer because it's a language. There's interpretation involved. So it, it's almost perfectly secure because it's, you're just essentially talking gibberish. So I guess a segue then, is there a favorite example that you might have that's not necessarily historic, a.k.a. from 
movies or made up scenarios or anything like that. Man, I'd really have to think about that to even come up with something. I'll, I'll give an example of mine. Like, for instance, I love Stranger Things. And in the third season, the most recent one, they, they talk about basically hacking this <laughs> these crazy Russians that are underground. And it's like, it's something, I, I, I'm going to butcher this, so somebody's going to be like, nope, you're wrong, it's actually this. But anyways, it's something like meat. Like the silver cat meets, it's a nice time for a walk with like the silver cat. And like, basically it sounds like you said, it sounds like gibberish. It's just like two sentences long that make no sense together. And unless you were in like the exact right location to like basically make witness to the the references, you wouldn't understand what the reference even was. So like, I don't know how you would get a computer to try and solve something like that. You'd essentially need an AI to think through it, and even then, <laughs> you can't really train an AI to solve that kind of problem. I'll say my favorite kind of historical example is, have you guys ever heard of the Voynich Manuscript? No, I have not. Enlighten us. So it's like this medieval manuscript with like these weird pictures in this language that nobody knows where it came from, what the pictures are why it even exists and people have been trying to crack the code for like hundreds of years and they still have no idea what it's about so just the unsolved yep it's just one of history's mysteries yeah i don't know if i could come up with one because i would i'd honestly probably have to google around just to jog my memory of what's out there i mean you guys mentioned the zodiac killer earlier and i always thought that was kind of cool and i didn't they recently just crack one of the puzzles finally that he put out years ago yeah, I think there was just some guys that were just working on it in their spare time. And I think I saw an article where they said they had thought they solved it. Yeah. And that one was kind of neat because he would just send these puzzles to the newspapers and they would publish them. And thousands and millions of people would just sit there and try to solve the problem. And they would call in whenever they figured out what it was because it was always a clue about the next killing or uh, something like that, if I remember correctly. So I guess to wrap up, Joe, how would somebody that's interested in this topic like get started with it? Oh, that's a tough question to answer. Uh, <laughs> the cryptography space itself is very tough to get into just because all of the information in it is very either like whenever you Google like anything cryptography, it's either way too high level where they don't really explain a whole lot. And it's kind of just like, yeah, this is a thing. Or it's way too academic and it's really hard to follow along with. I only got into it because I started working for a company that did PKI. And cryptography is a fundamental part of the software I write now. So that's how I had to, you know, pretty much introduce myself. But every time I have to like do anything with crypto, it's a nightmare because the documentation around it is so bad. <laughs> like Honestly, I couldn't even... Right, it's like you said, how do you write a document to, to keep track of the code that you just wrote that you're trying to make secure that you can't break into? But then it's like, the math is so complicated on it, you can't write it out or anything like that. So it's... Right, exactly. And whenever you try to read a note, like if you try to read a textbook explaining exactly the math behind the RSA algorithm, for instance, in most like math textbooks you can like follow along like where they derive these equations from and like it kind of makes sense like oh 
I understand why the, the velocity equation in physics is like this because, or the acceleration is this because it's the derivative of this X, Y, Z or whatever. Right. But like none of that applies to cryptography. You just like look at the math and you're like, how did they even think about this? Like, how do they come up with these algorithms? Because they just don't make any sense, but they just magically work essentially. So if you, if you wanted to get into reading cryptography, I, I, I can recommend a book that's actually really good about it. If that would make sense here. Yeah, go for it. There's a book called Serious Cryptography by John Philippe Aumasson. I want to, I can't, I don't know if I pronounced that last name right. Sorry. But it's kind of like a, it bridges the gap between the being too vague that you can't, you don't really get into it, how it works in the textbook. This is the math. Live with it. It really like kind of explains like, you know, what a hash is, what, symmetric encryption what asymmetric encryption is what a block cipher is and how all of that works and it's really really good for introductory into how crypto works josh you got anything else you want to ask joe before we sign off yeah what one fun question related to the maybe the an easier mindset a basic form of photography could be something like like a secret handshake and everything like that. So I'll just ask you, Joe, is there anything when you were growing up, did you ever do anything like make your own language with your friends or, or have like a secret handshake with anyone? This one's going to, this one's going to sound really, really nerdy. Do you like Klingon or something? <laughs> Not that nerdy. There was a, there's some book I got from back when I was a kid at a bookstore. It was essentially like everything about dragons and it like had like fake like dragon scales and stuff inside of it and like all these depictions of different kinds of dragons inside of it but one of the things it had in it was a language translation from characters in the english language to the characters in the draconic language that they had made up and i thought i was really cool writing like diary entries and stuff in this other language even though it was just like a one for one character transfer Oh man, it would be really, it'd be really neat to go back and try and read that right now. You'd, you'd be like, what the F? <laughs> it, it, and I was really impressed with myself because like I had memorized this language and I was like writing stuff in and thinking I was so cool. And then I realized like, man, yeah, no one else could read this. And also like, this is kind of dumb. <laughs> Well, Joe, thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing all your special knowledge with us. Cool. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. All right. Well, with the conclusion of the interview, we normally go back and forth, Josh and I, talking about if we would try the hobby we just discussed. But seeing as how this episode has kind of dragged on to quite a lengthy amount of time, I'm just going to maybe share my quick thoughts about everything. As you can probably tell, we are not experts about Bitcoin. So on further review, the theorem from von Mises that I was talking about is actually called the regression theorem, not the reduction theorem. So I'm going to include a link in the show notes from the Mises Institute, kind of explaining that better than I ever did. And then as well as some links to a guy named Andreas Antonopoulos. He seems to be one of the go-to guys in the Bitcoin community. And he has a series of videos, books, all kinds of stuff explaining more of that technology. So I started going through 
some of those. I think it's probably a really important technology that we all need to understand. So check out the show notes. I will link to his website as well. So with that, uh, give us a like or review on on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever it's called now. And then come over and follow us on Facebook and Twitter as well. Look forward to interacting with you guys. So I'll see you next week.